Welcome to the LEO Business Podcast, sponsored by LEO Networks, Ireland's leader in business connectivity. I'm your host, Joe Lynham, News Talks Business Editor. By sponsoring this podcast, LEO Networks aims to equip businesses of all sizes with insights from industry leaders, addressing today's most pressing challenges and fostering informed decision making and empower you with the knowledge you need to thrive in this digital age. We live in an age of high employment and very low unemployment. In an age where employers are screaming out for talented staff and employees hold the whip hand in pay talks. But do we have enough people to meet that demand, especially for technical skills? Are the universities producing the right types of graduates? Joining me now to discuss the workforce and skills is the Minister of State for Enterprise, Trade and Employment, Neil Richmond. Donald O'Donoghue is the President of the Employment and Recruitment Federation and Managing Director of Sanderson Recruitment. And Mark Cockrell is Vice President of ServiceNow and Board Member of the American Irish Chamber of Commerce. Can I start with you, Minister? Do we have the right skills? We don't have enough of it. We certainly have the right skills. We're getting better skills coming out of our third level institutions and within companies internally training up every, every, de- every day of every week. But we need more. We have the fastest growing economy in the EU. Full employment, which sounds great, but presents a massive challenge. And we need more skills. So that means in the medium term, we need more people doing the right courses of all types. But equally, we need to bring more people to Ireland from outside the EU as well as inside the EU. Last year, 2022, 40,000 non-EU citizens came to Ireland to work. 30,000 EU citizens came to Ireland to work. More Irish people came home last year to work than emigrated. I know, I was one of them. But we need more Joe. <laughs> we need more Joe Lynham's. Can I? Um, I'm sure people would disagree with that. But uh, Mark Cockrell from ServiceNow, um, you are part of an American giant. Uh, I'm going to ask you about the skills thing in a moment. Can you just tell us what ServiceNow does? Yeah, sure, Joe. So thanks for having us. And ServiceNow is effectively an enterprise software as a service platform. It facilitates major corporations, public sectors, for example, digitally transforming. <coughs> which sounds like what everybody wants, digital transformation, Mm. evolving their technology. Um, But that is effectively what we facilitate with workflows, with leveraging things that are very popular at the moment, like generative AI and the capability to really enable people to take that next step, to change the way in which they do business, to innovate into the future. Um, And we're doing it for major scale businesses, 85% the Fortune 500 for governments around the world. Um, and yes, we've grown considerably around the world and grown especially in Ireland. Yes, doing before that. Uh, lockdowns, before COVID, you were in double digits. And where are you now? So we now employ 550 people across the island of Ireland. Um, we have plans. We announced earlier this year, our CEO was over, announced 400 new roles over the next three years. As far as we're concerned, The future is bright, the future of our company and what we can provide to the world, but equally the importance of Ireland in that Mm. as a gateway to Europe. As long as you get the skills though, Mark. How did you go from, let's say, sub-50 staff to 500 north in the space of three years? That must have been a headache in hiring terms. It's first world problems though, Joe. When you're hiring at that level and you're growing at that scale, people are excited about the opportunity People are excited about the growth potential that exists. It has been choppy waters in tech in the last couple of years. And Mm. the message we have and the message there are other tech companies that have as well is there is still opportunity. There is still growth. Skills is an important question and challenge, Mm. though. Um, There are, you know, Ireland has a lot to be proud of. 
63% of Irish people between 25 and 34 have a third level uh, qualification. Mm. That's 22 points, I think, higher than the European average. You know, it's the most productive country in the world, uh, according to the OECD's recent analysis. But in terms when you of were workforce. advertising for all those, we're talking hundreds of jobs over the past three or four years. Yeah. Was it not a headache trying to fill them and, and really get the right people into very technically advanced jobs? It is always a challenge because you want to get, as you say, the right people, the right culture. Mm. So you hire good recruiters, you hire the right infrastructure. You most importantly, I think, tell the right message. Like what is your culture? What are you about? What is the opportunity you're creating? And of course, that great influx of new talent means that the culture of the company in an Irish context evolves very quickly. You've got to be ready to spin and evolve with that to account for, no, we no longer have people in double digits. We're accounting for triple digits. Mm. We're hopefully in due course accounting for people in four digits. Mm. So that growth is just growing pains, but what a great growing pain, if you like, to have. Let me bring in Donald O'Donoghue from the Employment and Recruitment Federation. Square pegs don't fit into round holes. What's it like finding really, really technically experienced people for thousands of available posts? Well, I think one of the things that we have to differentiate in the conversation is we've started talking about skills and skills is a different thing to the amount of people that are available to fulfill roles. Yeah. So as you said, it is absolutely first world problems. We're in a great situation where we've got full employment and there's still demand in the market. Now, the latest data says that the average time to fill a vacancy is about 30 days. And in the post pandemic boom, it was about 40 days. So the market has moderated again a little bit. Hang on, is it that 30 or 40 days from the moment an advertisement is placed to interview starting or someone actually starting work? That is from briefing to offer an acceptance. So somebody starting then is determined by whether they have a one, two or three month notice period, depending mm -hmm. on the seniority. But I think what's important when we talk about the skills agenda is to, I suppose, understand that there's a difference between the number of people in the labor market and the skills that are required now compared to the skills that are required in the future. Mm. And that's where we have somewhat of a mismatch. And this is where the national skills strategy comes into play uh, to see what are we doing now to upskill and reskill people that are moving from sectors in decline into sectors in growth and into jobs that may be displaced through evolving technologies, disruption, artificial intelligence, et cetera. And that's where things get really interesting. Let me bring back in Neil Richmond uh, on this one, uh, Minister. Um, the government is drawing up a list of vital jobs, vital sectors, vital roles. Um, do they have the right list established yet or is it still open? Is that still an open book? Well, that list will always be open and it has to be Joe because it will it will evolve as the economy evolves as society evolves but the government I think fundamentally it's not about the government it's government working with the private sector working with the third level and further education institutions to analyse what do we need in the next six months what do we need in the next five years and in due course in the next ten years mm. there's only so far you can go and it's about future proofing that the people who are doing never mind the people who are in college now but the people who are starting secondary school now that when they go to their CAO and they're choosing courses in six years' time, that when they enter their workforce in 10 years' time, there will be jobs there for them, first and foremost, and they'll be able to grow with the job. And one thing that's really important when we talk about the national skills strategy and the skills agenda, we're in European year of the skills, so it's not just an Irish uh, issue, it's, it's EU-wide. It's also about lifelong learning. So it's identifying what our future school leavers will need, but also the person who trained for a certain job 
25 years ago. It's difficult to retrain when you hit your 40s and you've got your family and all that stuff, isn't well, it? Well, it's not about, that's, it's very difficult and that's what we're trying to avoid. We don't want that massive moment that I've hit 45, I've been offered a redundancy notice or the job that I, I joined the company with 25 years ago isn't there. Mm. It's the constant evolution within the workforce and something we're looking to crack and we haven't cracked it as a government because we can't do it alone is working hand in hand with industry to make sure that it's the constant training. It's that lifelong learning that there's always upskilling. This is nothing new. You talk How do you to, persuade that 45-year-old who's been offered a package to retrain and do something pretty different? doesn't have to be radically different, but fairly different. Well, I'm talking about two different things. Retraining the 45-year-old, 50-year-old, whatever it is, is one thing, and it's providing the supports that they can train and financial well-being. But let's scale it back. It's about the constant evolution. You talk to a cardiothoracic surgeon, they constantly... I talk to them all the time. <laughs> Bad example. But you know what I mean? You talk to any medic, they constantly upskill. They constantly retrain. Your cardiothoracic surgeon who performed a certain operation 20 years ago doesn't do that operation more, doesn't use that technology. That's what it needs to be for the economy as a whole. And that's why we want to work with the private sector and as well as the public uh, sector to say, well, what supports do you need from the government? How do we make sure that constantly upskilling your workforce isn't costly? That it's not onerous, it doesn't hurt business, it doesn't hurt growth. Donald, you wanted to get in there on that issue. Yeah, and I, I would agree, and I'd agree with what Mark said earlier on in terms of Ireland is leading. We're number four in terms of OECD, OECD countries uh, for, of, for holders of tertiary or undergraduate degrees. Mm. Where we're falling behind is in the lifelong learning piece. So at the moment, the latest numbers say that only... 14% of people over 25 are currently involved in lifelong education or training. 14. 14. So this is the time to pull on the green jersey. And this is where the cooperation between the private sector and government and, and our semi-states really comes into play because we hope now when we see the budget next month that we'll see the continuing and increased investment in the skills agenda through SkillNet Ireland where there are either free or subsidised training available to employees to make sure that their skills are future-proofed. When you, Mark Cockrell from ServiceNow, when you are looking for someone, do you go to the recruiters, people like Donal, or do you go to the universities and say, these are the type of graduates we're looking for? Uh, at the moment, it's been more a question of recruiters, both external and internal, mm -hmm. because we are inevitably looking for people with a bit more experience in terms of when we were growing from a certain base up to where we are at the moment. That's the nature of the beast, I think, in any type of initial growth period of any organization, especially a tech company, uh, instilling itself in the local economy and the ecosystem. The thing that I think excites me is that hasn't been too much of a challenge. And I'll say this because I always quote the Sir Isaac Newton line, if I can see further than you, it's because I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. Mm. We sometimes don't give credit to the fantastic ecosystem and the copious amounts of talent that have been established before by others that have gone before us. Um, and I always make the point about this. Th this isn't a new challenge in relation to skills and in terms of multinational investment. You can go back to T.K. Whitaker's economic policies, Lamasse and Kennedy's famous meeting 60 years ago. We sometimes forget that a third of all American multinationals in Ireland have already been here for more than 20 years. So John F. Kennedy and T.K. Whitaker, it's not often we get to discuss them in 2023. Um, they were right in many respects, but to finish your point. Yes. So that's to a point in time. And now 
what ServiceNow is doing, as many tech companies have to do in the private sector almost in themselves, is we're investing uh, in that new talent pool coming through. Some of it will involve retraining and capabilities for retraining, but a lot of it will be uh, early in career opportunities. So we've got a Rise Up program. We're going to train a million people globally by 2024. And part of that is obviously creating a greater train network for our ecosystem, our partners, our customers, and the capability around that. Mm. But we genuinely think there is opportunity there to increase diversity. In certain parts of the world, we're going to be focusing on underrepresented groups, obviously, and underrepresented minorities to help in that regard. But equally, we just think it's a good thing to do, to invest in tech skills, to invest in people, to invest in the future. And I know you're asking the minister there about the skills uh, elements and how uh, you know the, the ecosystem can work better together. Personally, I'd love to see even greater collaboration between the universities, government, and the private sector to design what that protocol is, what the future looks like, because we're not making decisions for now. We're trying to make decisions and plan for 10 years, 20 years Which away. Neil Richmond was talking to. Are you talking enough to the universities? And give us a practical example of how governments talk to the universities and the third level institutions. Well, it's, it's, it's as basic as getting them all into a room and talking about through the sectoral, indeed, geographic areas. Last year, um, this year, kids going, excuse the term, kids going into third level up for their education had the option of doing 6,000 new courses that weren't there before. Yeah. These are all courses that are newly developed, not all degree level, level eights, level sevens. Some of them are expanded courses. Um, some of them are your old fashioned course that's been rendered down into one subject. And that's through the collaboration. It's looking with what what industry needs when we you use set targets for the universities and say listen we need a lot more stem we need a lot more of something absolutely because universities rely on the government for money <laughs> so, <laughs> so you have them over a barrel not quite because they also have to then invest in the talent themselves mm. you have to have the academics to teach it you have to have the facilities to accommodate the students both for learning but also and we'll get to it no doubt a bit more but also for those who need residential mm. you also have to give universities the ability to bring students from outside ireland because that really generates a different type of ecosystem. It encourages people to come study for their full undergraduate course, for a postgraduate, for an Erasmus, whatever it is. That generates a better system. It means people will go into the Irish economy, but also take learnings out. But crucially, we'll say quite clearly, not only do we want more people in STEM, but we want more women in STEM. We want more people from unrepresented minorities. We look at the breakdown of our workforce and we talk about full employment we talk about training and skills, we talk about the medium term. In the short term, I talk a lot about bringing people in from outside the country. But one of the real key levers is also maximising those who've been marginalised from the workforce. Mm. So one of the things that I'm really disappointed about and made a real um, focus of my work is bringing more people who are born with physical and mental disabilities into the workforce. Mm -hmm. We saw a huge amount of job creation in the first half of this year. 70% of the new jobs were taken up by women. Mm. women who weren't able to access the workforce. And that's how we change domestic policy. Well, in you might be of, dipping into kind of childcare issues now a little bit. That's part of it, but it's it's beyond childcare as well. It's about flexibility in the workplace. Mm. It's the right to request remote working. It's about putting in the physical infrastructure through broadband so people don't necessarily have to commute as for all the jobs that they have the past. Mm -hmm. If you can have someone who can do the job brilliantly three days out of the week in five hours away from Dublin in a remote um, remote part of the country with top class connectivity, mm. that's someone who wouldn't have been accessing the workforce arguably since before the pandemic. Um, here's an idea. If you want to get a lot more people into STEM, STEM subjects, science, technology uh, and maths, 
why don't you waive all fees? Because there's an administration fee, which is still a substantial amount of money for a lot of people, and say, anyone who wants to get into those subjects doesn't pay a thing. Accommodation is a different discussion, mm. obviously. We're getting there. Reduced fees last year uh, for undergraduates. Um, we'll reduce them again this year, and we'll consistently keep bringing them down. And the return is rather than, <coughs> excuse me, making a disadvantage that, you know, we're only going to reduce fees for those who want to get into a STEM subject, mm. whereas people who are going into medicine or the law don't get it. We put it up to the university saying you need to prepare, you need to make allowances for more people in STEM. And that's how you get your more funding. And we'll bring down the fees for everyone, but there will be more availability of STEM subjects. There'll be more accessibility, both in terms of the nature of how they're studied, but also in terms of uh, campus access. That's how we're focusing that way. Because we still need doctors. We still need everyone else to work in every part mm-hmm. uh, of um, society, the economy and academia. But the more places we have, and again, it goes back to the the cr- crude infrastructure in our third levels. And one of the big things that were done last year was, the, or in the last couple of years, was the creation of the removing what were the institutes of technology and merging them together for, say, the Atlantic Technical University, the Southeastern, the Southeastern Technical University, and the Technical University of the Shannon. It's bringing Munster Technical University. It's bringing together too many people who are working, I suppose, against each other in some regards, bring them together in one infrastructure because that in turn makes it a lot easier that if we have an explosion of FDI of about six or seven large tech companies who want to marry with another two dozen indigenous tech companies in one part of the countries, we have a third level cluster. All of a sudden we have the relationship developing up that you'll leave school, you'll go into this third level institution, you'll then go into the workplace with maybe an indigenous or large um, FDI company, but in turn you'll maintain that relationship with that third level institution for that lifelong learning. A bit like McKinsey, except for universities. Donald O'Donoghue, do you want to get in on that one? Yeah, I suppose I've got a a pretty good practical example of how um, the government worked with us in the Employment and Recruitment Federation to help people access um, uh, education, level eight degree uh, in recruitment practice uh, through the apprenticeship model. So um, very briefly, what we did as the recruitment industry, we realized that we had a talent shortage in our own industry and we needed to rapidly solve it. Um, So we put together a a consortium steering group. Uh, We worked with our partners in the National College of Ireland and we formulated the world's first ever honours degree at level eight in recruitment practice. uh, And it's delivered as part of the national apprenticeship model. So learners can work four days a week in a recruitment agency. They go to National College of Ireland one day per week, uh, sometimes on site, sometimes remotely. And at the end of three years, while they're earning while they learn, uh, they have a level eight honours degree in recruitment practice. We launched it in 2020 and the first cohort graduated in 2023. So hitherto, there was no professional qualification. Anybody could rock up as a recruiter. Well, typically people had a qualification in a, in a different area. So people mm. with a finance background were finance recruiters or people with an engineering background maybe were engineering recruiters or people maybe had a business or a HR degree. But mm. nowhere in the in the world was there a, an honours degree in recruitment practice. But it's practice. not mandatory. It's, it's not mandatory. System. Yeah. It's a voluntary system. And we used it, I suppose, because the the point you made earlier on is how do you get somebody who's, you know, midway through their career and they have a mortgage and they have living expenses, how do you get them to reskill? Mm. So there were a lot of people that worked, for example, in support services, in administration roles and recruitment companies that never had a chance to do a degree. 
they were able to go on, join the apprenticeship model, get a qualification and then move upwards in their career. We're also taking career changers and school leavers that maybe are more practical learners uh, because, you know, the the apprenticeship model focuses more on continuous assessment than on exams. There's only two exams, I think, in the entire three year degree. So there's a practical example of how the government have supported through the apprenticeship model professional level eight honours degree. Do you get many graduates or many applicants who um, have started off in a, a very hands-on physical blue-collar industry and then transferred or merged across to, I don't know, coding or technology or something very um, brain-led? No, we don't. Because the first thing you have to look at is interest. And the second thing you have to look at is cognitive ability. So mm-hmm. typically people that have started in something that is very task-focused will will stay in something that's task-focused. Fo- task and people that have worked, for example, in more professional services, uh, will we'll kind of gravitate in that way. So, for example, with the recruitment degree, we found that uh, a lot of IT recruiters who had maybe done software development as their undergrad degree and had ended up working in HR or recruitment wanted to then go back and uh, and get a qualification in that area. But I think you have to look at interest and aptitude first. And as part of a, a skills-first strategy, it's about encouraging people to upskill and skill in areas that they're interested in because that's where they're going to do best. What about CVs? I I had a I spoke to a person who and they work for a very large company and they're scrapping CVs at a certain type of job. Is that the kind of thing that should be entertained, or is that only something that could be done at a certain type? Um, it depends. Um, you'll see a lot in the public sector. It's an application form rather than a CV because you want to assess people under the same headings. Uh, Unilever, as part of their global graduate recruitment uh, process years ago, removed the CV and only allowed people to apply with their LinkedIn profile because they're all laid out the same way and it removes some bias from the process. So you could, but, of course, you could pad out your LinkedIn profile. Yes, you can, but it's the, it follows the same format. So it makes it easier if you're mm. using any sifting technology and easier in terms of some kind of initial assessments. But I don't think we're in a state where we're moving away from the CV. The CV is here to, to stay. What's changing more is the assessment and, and interview modules. Okay. And when you are talking to potential applicants, do you pre-interview them before you send them on to a company? Always, yeah. So typically in our business, we will conduct a screening interview and often a behavioral assessment as well to look at their motiv- uh, their motivators, their Would you do an IQ test or something like that? Typically not IQ tests, usually behavioral or personality. So personality, the gold standard is the big five. So mm. we look at somebody's openness to experience, conscientiousness, levels of extroversion, agreeableness and neuroticism. And on the behavioral side of things, we look at people's Uh, I suppose, their levels of uh, dominance, influence, steadiness and compliance to try to build a picture of how somebody is likely to interact and behave in the workplace. And will that tell you whether someone's a team player or whether someone is the kind of really creative individual that often do very well in this world? Yeah, well, it can give certain indicators, like the biggest indicator of somebody's likely success in their career or in their life is their level of conscientiousness, because conscientious people organize their life well, they're industrious and orderly, and Mm. that's the best indicator along with cognitive ability of your success. But you can see other things in terms of who will be the best people to work, for example, in business development, where they're more front-footed and direct and assertive. You'll see the people that are better to work in compliance roles, where they're uh, very methodical and work through a process. Exactly. And able to stay on task because some of us are 
complex task oriented where we will stay on task and finish tasks or others of us like um, myself are multitask oriented we'll start mowing the grass and then start trimming the hedge before the grass is finished being mowed and need somebody to pull us back to tell us to finish the first task before starting the next one is your garden a mess it's very tidy due to a partner who's very good at bringing me back to task. Okay, very good. Let me go to Mark Cockrell in in that theme. You must get so many CVs in front of you. Um, what kind of personalities are you looking for? Now, obviously, there's so many different roles. Sure. But you come from a Silicon Valley company, and mm-hmm. they are set up usually by very focused, driven individuals who aren't usually team players. Um, well, that might apply to certain Silicon Valley companies, I would say. I wouldn't necessarily say it applies to ServiceNow. I think a key part of our culture is about the inclusivity of all. And I can actually point to the Dublin office as a prime example of that. We've we've 55 different nationalities, but we've also 35 different functional teams in Ireland. Mm. So in that regard, you talk about skills, and I fully echo um, what Don was saying about conscientiousness being a key attribute we're talking about key core principles that apply. But of course, you're talking about fundamentally different skill sets and capabilities. And if you think of the old Briggs-Myers test in terms of whether someone's a blue or a red or mm. a green or a yellow. When we're hiring marketing, it's a very different skill set from legal or from finance or, of course, engineering in that regard. So we've got to always look in a holistic fashion to make sure you create not just the right type or you know, a type of individual. It's about the holistic team overall. And that applies globally. I mean, 22,000 people globally, but even more so, I would say, locally here in terms of what we're looking for. Minister, can I ask you about um, something that Mark has just said, and it's the number of international applicants. Um, Obviously, Ireland is part of the European Union. It is obliged to take uh, applications from within the EEA. Um, but quite a few, um, quite a few, I'm sure, of ServiceNow staff don't come from within the EEA. Um, is that a political headache? And is there something because eventually, you know, if you have a huge number of non-European applicants, it could be something that could be a political headache. I certainly don't view it as something that's going to become a political you headache. You don't, but potentially some of your colleagues. Yeah, and hopefully not colleagues in my own party, and I don't envisage it. If we are to be continuously successful and continuously growing as an economy, we're a small place. We need to be outward looking. We need to be open um, to a transient workforce that doesn't necessarily come from the EEA member states and, and indeed the United Kingdom as well as part of that. As I said, with la- the common travel area. With the common travel area. As I la- said last year, 40,000 people from outside the EEA came to Ireland for work. Another 30,000 came into international protection, another 80,000 refugees. So they don't draw upon the state in terms of social services? Not at all. And the average salary is over six figures. These are extremely talented people. We occupy a skills-based assessment, critical critical skills, eligible and ineligible based on the occupations. We've managed to change the turnaround time, time pretty drastically. About a year ago, it would have taken 21 weeks to get a work permit. We've got that down to an average of nine days. Okay. What we hope to do in the next 18 months. And they can start and they get a PPS straight away. PPS straight, ready to work. They just have to then get a visa. And this is the second part. In the next 18 months, we want to unify the system. So right now, you get your work permit. You then have to wait for your visa to come through. 
could stretch it out by six weeks. And Donald, I don't know, many of your candidates are going to wait six weeks for a job in the current market, but we want to bring it together whereby you apply for a work permit and visa in one go and you get a direct answer. The only other European Union company doing similar is the Netherlands. We think we can match what they're doing and more importantly, improve upon what they're doing because that's how we're going to stay dynamic. I've been in so many different tech companies over the last uh, number of months. I think the record I've met in terms of nationality, you said you have 55, 122. That's the record I've met. In my own constituency, there's two side by side, both employing over 3,000 people from each over 75 different nationalities. That's creating so many jobs. And there's no issue? There's no kind of cultural clash yet? Well, the issue isn't on the part of the workers, the employees. The issue, to be honest, is on the part of the government. Mm. We need to do better to allow the spouses and the families of those workers not just come here quicker, but to work quicker. Mm. And this is something that I found, found a lot as a backbencher and really passionate. You'll have someone who'll come over for a six-figure C-suite executive job. A lot of efforts come to recruit them in. They're doing a great job, but they have a spouse at home who's miserable because they can't work. Mm. Maybe they don't have the language skills. Some of the companies have been really good at um, putting together language training, social networks, everything like that. But the biggest isolation is their lack of ability to access the workforce or uh, the, the labour force for over 12 months. We're determined to change that. Donald Dunhill. I would, I'd support what you're saying, Minister, in terms of the streamlining of the process. But I think the biggest challenge um, is, the, is the housing crisis for, for people coming into the country. Well, there's a couple of things. Um, there are, we know the shortages in STEM and ICT and in, in various areas. And we're, we're having a good amount of progress in streamlining the process around uh, work permits and, and visas. The challenge is the housing crisis. And the other challenge is the marginal tax rate for these high earners at 52%, which is a, you know, in 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 comparison to international, we're, we're still pretty high. And then when and you also take the, it- the, 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 the amount that they earn before they jump into the high rate is very low. It's very low. And then the other challenge you have for entrepreneurs, because we want Ireland to be attractive to entrepreneurs and to these international tech companies, is that marginal tax rate jumps to 55% if you're self-employed because of the 3% USC surcharge. So I think, uh, and I'm crossing my fingers in, in the budget next month, I think that would be a great stent- statement of intent from the government if we see that uh, USC surcharge uh, being abolished because it is it is a disincentive when we're competing now for talent and for business on a global scale. Just to go back to the minister on that, people uh, earn a lot of money in gross terms, but they often see less than 50% of it. Yeah, and today and all the opposition uh, called for greater tax increases. Um, we will be cutting income tax in the budget coming up. Um, my party has been saying that and we've been doing that for a long Just time. To, to, for those of you who aren't familiar with Fine Gael, which is seen as a centre-right party, would that be fair? Yeah, that's it. We're part of the European People's Party on a, on a European level, same as the German Christian Democrats and similar. We absolutely are committed to broadening out um, and increasing the amount people can earn before they go into that that higher uh, tax threshold. Unfortunately, Ireland is, it's the lowest rate in Europe where you go into the higher threshold. Mm. We've reduced that consistently. Um, but not index linked. Not index linked. Over the mm. last um, seven years, people now pay three and a half thousand euro less in income tax um, because of the changes in terms of the bans. USC, we will see some ridiculous reductions in that guard, but I'll be quite blunt, in this jurisdiction we're in a three-party coalition and um, we won't have the level of taxing decreases that I'd like, but we will have some because of it. But the most important point, to be honest, is accommodation. Mm. It's building um, private, affordable, cost rental uh, accommodation at scale. 
Last year, um, we beat our targets in terms of housing provision. This year, we'll Roughly beat them 30, again. Thirty-three thousand units. units um, completed last year available for people to move in we were um, building almost 90,000 a year before the financial crisis what happened well well the financial crisis happened first start show and mm. uh, so many of our builders um went out of business and we lost so many of the skills over a decade of people emigrating to countries like Canada and Australia that weren't impacted as much um this year we've seen or this past year we've seen over 33,000 homes built we'll see more than that again next year of all types and what we'll also see included in that is we'll see more homes restored homes that have gone in derelict or perhaps the upstairs of um, townscapes above the shop living where mm. they've been using as storage we're providing huge grants of up to 120,000 euros. Oh, no, but the NIMBYs will block it Minister. NIMBYs will always block and I can put on record I've never once uh, opposed to a housing development at any stage in my political You may not career. have, but there are quite a few people out there that object to the building of the tiniest walls. And that's a real shame, but that's why we brought in legislation that has gone in to streamline that process and reduce the ability for nuisance objections. And we see this consistently where an individual in Galway will object to an apartment development in Dublin city centre. Why is that allowed? In the UK, for example, you, it, you must be materially impacted yourself to object. Well, going forward, it won't be allowed. We're making that change. The legislation was brought through by the previous Minister of Local Government, Peter Burke, and that's going to allow a supercharge. But we also want to provide um, developers and those in construction with the tax incentives to build more at scale, at height, particularly uh, in our city centres. Now, can I go to Mark Cockrell uh, from ServiceNow, but also the American Irish Chamber of Commerce. Accommodation is an issue, which is a political hot potato. Um, when you're looking for people, do you tell them, um, you know, we'll give you a good six-figure salary, but uh, good luck finding somewhere to live for under 3K a month? Uh, no, we're very transparent with people in terms of some of the challenges, especially if they're going to base themselves in Dublin. Um, there's no doubt that we have an accommodation. Do you tell shortage. them in the interview process that accommodation is super pricey here? So it's, it's very interesting. The highest in Europe for rent. I'm sure it is. Um, we have been very transparent with anybody that comes because, of course, we are hiring people who are already in Ireland, but we're also hiring people across the EU, as I said, and even some outside of the EU. Um, it's interesting. We're talking about skills and we're talking about the Ireland challenges. Sometimes we overlook the fact that Ireland's pool is 500 million plus. The reality is the benefit of the EU works both ways in that regard. Mm. And Ireland every part of Ireland, Dublin in particular, but around the country. We have a number of people that work permanently remotely around the country. Ireland's a very attractive place for people, especially early in career, but people with families to come to and move to. The key question that comes up time and time again, though, is housing and how much support can you give as a company? How much can you guide or, or assist people in this regard? And the simple answer is it isn't easy. It isn't straightforward. It is something, as the minister's alluded to, is a known problem. And everyone, um, I think, is aligned on the fact that nobody is glossing over this. That everybody's trying to address it, but it won't be solved immediately. Um, I do find it interesting as well. I'd like to thank the minister because he's obviously trying to speed up the visa process. It sounds like you might need some enterprise workflows to help you with that minister so we'll we'll we'll, we'll help you i with know that a company that sells a, a software pretty, as a service that company. might be able to help yeah. the, the tender will be going live pretty soon yeah. sounds more at all bits but but just to say joe i just want to emphasize we, we're obviously given the, the makeup here talking a lot about tech um this is a broader question both the skills question and obviously the housing question 
When you think of the plethora of pharma companies, med tech companies, life sciences, manufacturing in Ireland, mm. it's a hotbed for multiple industries, multiple opportunities in different parts of the country. But also, all around. Uh, there's a huge demand for low skilled jobs as well. People who don't necessarily um, want to work in technology or pharma or anything like that, who perhaps want to work in a restaurant, perhaps want to work in a pub. Absolutely. And I think, again, that's not uh, that's not actually a bad thing. No. We should have a broad ecosystem where there is opportunities at all levels and all <laughs> layers of the economy. Um, and I think that's what we have. We have a great uh, opportunity in front of us. I mean, let's put it this way, Joe. If we You mentioned the financial crisis a minute ago. This would be a very different podcast than 2008, 2009. Mm. You know, 2010. Afford to do the podcast. Yeah. We could. Nobody could afford to do the podcast. It was doom and gloom. Uh, in respect of it, we think about the turnaround that's occurred in the last 12 years, the opportunity that stretches before us. We're talking about quite literally. I used the term earlier: first world problems. Mm. They are problems we have to address holistically with government, with private enterprise, with universities when it comes to skills. But what a great place to be! And what a great Staying with to accommodation have. would service now, which is a pretty successful global player. Would it entertain buying property, renting property for its staff, um, even you know, paying for accommodation? Uh, we will look at all opportunities and scenarios that make sense for our staff in uh, in Ireland, obviously. However, you bear in mind, if you're buying accommodation, Joe, you're dictating to people where exactly they have to live mm. and the circumstances related to that. We are growing in Ireland. We're not obviously at the scale of some multinational investors in Ireland uh, and companies in that regard. But, you know, of course, these are things that all have to be considered. But I'd ask you, does that help solve the problem or add to the problem? Well, there, there is a supply and demand issue, uh, which is if you pay for accommodation, you may drive up the price of the product. Um, but that's another discussion which we will have. Donal, everybody's talking about AI, artificial intelligence and machine learning. Is that a skills gap that Ireland has or are we not in a bad place when it comes to companies and individuals who are ready for this revolution, which is going to change how we work and how we live. It is definitely going to change how we work and how we live. And I think the big question on people's mind is about job displacement. And certainly all the latest research and what we're seeing is that AI is going to augment rather than automate. So um, as many jobs are displaced, we think more will be created. So it will be a net positive gain. And so I would say that, uh, you know, and it comes back to the skills agenda. When you think about the knowledge economy and highly skilled people, um, it's down to whether the individual takes accountability for developing their skills in that area or whether it's more of a a company led approach. But it's certainly um, across different disciplines. If you think about professional services, the amount of uh, efficiency uh, a legal firm can get uh, through uh, initial drafting through AI. If you think about in our own business in in recruitment, you know, development of role profiles and job specifications, a lot of those manual tasks are now, you know, the time is is uh, is reduced by a factor of ninety percent. Do you guys use AI already to scan CVs? We don't use AI for CV scanning. We'll use it for development of role profiles and for. Uh, optimizing uh, keyword richness for sifting of CVs and, and that kind of thing. And so, how would you find out if somebody hadn't used AI in their application? You know, sometimes when you have to ask, you know, write a you know a two hundred word or two thousand word essay, yeah. how do you know the AI hasn't written it? And it's in, and it's important as well in academia. I lecture in in 
uh, in a third level uh, university and there's AI that helps us predict if something has been written by AI. <laughs> so <laughs> the same way, you know, when you looked at an assignment years ago, uh, there was software to give you an idea if, if there was plagiarism at play. There's, mm. there's, uh, so AI is helping us spot AI. <laughs> Mark, AI, mm-hmm. we all know it's there, it's here, it's happening, it's going to change how we work. Um, are you guys using it already? And are you finding that there's enough talent out there to meet your demand in that sphere? So in terms of how we use it already, um, ServiceNow has been on the AI journey for a while. We've made multiple acquisitions around AI capabilities over the last number of years. So we've just released our, we do two releases a year. We've done our Vancouver release, which has a bunch of AI capability infused into the platform. So this is tools for people to leverage generative AI on their own data to produce better results and to make employees smarter, more efficient. Um, You think about even employees' growth journeys. If you're leveraging AI to suggest new skills, new capabilities to improve their annual development plan, that to me is the future and the benefit of AI. This is where it can really be meaningful to help people on a skills journey help people in their daily job uh, in, in relation to it. And we are fully invested in it. We're very much the, I would say, the leading platform in terms of adoption of that in an enterprise setting. We're also very clear that there are concrete ethical elements in relation to it. Our AI is not about taking our customers' data and combining it with a bunch of other people. It's about building the tools for them to apply to their data. So the IP and the data questions are critical. And whenever we talk about AI, this is also where the role of government, I think, is absolutely crucial. We're talking about a technology that is so nascent that even the companies dealing with it, but certainly the governments dealing with it, do not know where this will take us in the future. I think, and we think it's going to help improve and it's going to help evolve people's capabilities. But when you think, or go back in history again, was it 1st of January 93, Tim Berners-Lee created the internet? Mm -hmm. That's been a short 30 years. I think he created the World Wide Web. World Wide Web, that's true. That's very... I knew you'd keep me honest, Joe. (laughs) I knew you'd keep me honest. But you think of how uh, everything in the way we work, the skills that are expected, the way in which industry applies, the way in which we live our lives has evolved. AI could be equally as important as this. But what we need more than anything, I think, is consistency at a European level, at a global level, in terms of you know, how we think about this, how we want to treat this and regulate it. I'll say to you from a a US tech company basis and any American tech company out there or any European tech company will say, we want regulation and guardrails and guidance in relation to this. But what we want is consistency is one of the challenges. Um, Minister, we're going to be doing a separate podcast on AI and machine learning, but is the government cognizant of how big a deal this is going to be and do we have the skills for it? Absolutely. That's why we've just launched the National AI Strategy. And Mark's right. This is something that needs consistency. And we very much see ourselves as going to be one of the leading member states within the EU in terms of driving EU regulation. And it has to be done on an EU basis and then as much as possible. No individual country is going to make a difference. No, no individual country within the EU has the capability to regulate and harness AI to the best of its um, potential but also what we then have to do which is a unique um, challenge for politicians is we have to sell AI 
we have to convince people because there's an awful lot. You can already see it literally at the gates. There's an awful lot of conspiracy theories about it, a lot of undue concern. And sure, you can recognize concern, but the best way to counter concern is not to shout down the argument and just say someone's wrong, but to demonstrate how this is working. So it uh, won't be the end of civilization, as some people wrote, you know, as recently as last March, and senior, senior people in AI wrote a letter saying it could be the extinction of the human race. Everything could be the extinction of the human race. That's the challenge. You know, there's advances in medical technology and everything every year that could be disastrous. But if you get it right, the opportunities and potentials this could for making, never mind to the um, the technological advancements, the everyday improvements of people's lives in terms of accessing healthcare, in terms of accessing vital government services, doing it in a way that is properly regulated, that's properly legislated for, and that is crucially consistent. I think we're very much at the, the top of the queue within the EU. We've 14 of the 15 biggest tech companies in the world have their European head offices in Dublin. We want to lead on this. We're already contributing from a government point of view, but parallel to that, we need to bring the public conscious up uh, on this journey together and say that we recognise concerns, but here has, here's how it's going to work, here how it's going to be marshaled, going to be regulated, and here here is how AI definitely will improve the average day lives of your of Irish people. Now, Donald, to sum up, where are we with skills? Are we in a good place or are you a tiny bit worried? I think we're in a good place. Um, and I think that we're taking the right approach for development. So my top three tips, uh, the first one is for employers, and that is to focus on skills rather than on job descriptions. And when you attract the right talent with the right aptitude to, to focus then on flexible and modular learning so that somebody can continue their development and that, that whole focus on lifelong learning piece. Um, the next tip I would give is to focus on tech-enabled continuous learning. It was difficult years ago um, before we had such good technology to, to, to make that effort to keep your learning up. There's so much access to you know, modular learning online that companies can sponsor. Uh, for employees. I think that's vitally important. And then back to Mark's point from earlier on, it's about tapping in to alternative labor sources. So whether that's women returners, whether that's migrants, whether that's older people uh, that can be brought back into the into the workforce as contractors, as professional contractors, where, for example, the permanent employment contract may have a mandatory retirement age that can be brought back in. So we're not losing that knowledge from our labor market. Um, and then, uh, uh, and I suppose uh, disabled people as well, making sure that we are accessing that talent as well, uh, because that's better for culture. It's better for inclusion. And I think if we focus on those three things, we're in a pretty good place. Mark Cockrell from ServiceNow, are we in a good place? Generally, yes, but there's a qualified yes. I think personally, the, co the coordination at third level and the focus of the universities can be improved and can be tightened. And I think one thing the minister said is is true, but is also the problem. He said, we need tech you know, capabilities and skills, or we need in pharma, or we need in the various industries, but we also need doctors. We also need lawyers. I mean, as a qualified lawyer, I, I fully agree in that, <laughs> that regard. Um, but I come back to this truism. If everything is important, then nothing is important. And I think a degree of prioritization and focus, even sharper than we've done before, is essential. And that does mean being futurist and trying to plan what we need in 10 years. But the decisions the minister and the government make now will only come to fruition really five, 10 years down the line. Yeah, it means some big decisions, doesn't it, Minister Neil Richmond? Um, some courses you need to trim and make them less available and some you need to make them far easier to do. 
Yeah, and that's always a tough decision. Um, but it's something that we've done before and we'll do it again. To your key point, I think we're in a really good place. I think we're in a much better place than we were five, five years ago, but we're going to be in a much better place in five years. And yes, it's identifying the skills of tomorrow, the skills of today that we need more improvements of, but it's also creating that ecosystem. And that's a tough thing. Where we are at the moment in terms of our economic advancement, it didn't happen by accident. It came out of the, the ashes of a really, really deep uh, financial crash not that long ago. If we are to maintain the levels of growth, the levels of opportunity expansion, the global reputation in key specialised areas, tech, life sciences, med tech, this is why people are coming to invest in Ireland and why Irish businesses are created. It requires that investment financially, but also maintaining that ecosystem making sure we're a place that not only can businesses grow, but ultimately there's a reason Ireland is in pretty much every top 10 indice around the world for, as a place to live. And that requires a huge responsibility from all of us. And on that positive note, I think we'll wind up. Neil, thank you very much. Neil Richmond, the Minister of State for Enterprise, Trade and Employment. Donal O'Donoghue, President of the Employment and Recruitment Federation and the boss of Sanderson Recruitment. And last but not least, Mark Cockrell, Vice President of ServiceNow and a board member of the American Irish Chamber of Commerce. Thanks all. That wraps up another episode of the LEO podcast. We hope you found our discussion as captivating as we did. Remember, our journey through the realms of connectivity, technology and business continues. LEO Networks, with 25 years of serving Irish businesses, offers a unique next-day installation and connectivity service. So stay tuned for more thought-provoking episodes that promise to empower you with the knowledge and inspiration you need. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts.